0: Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Do you have a particular food that reminds you of home? Maybe it's the lumpia, those spring rolls your family used to make, or Posole from the Mexican restaurant down the street. Whatever the dish may be, food has the power to comfort us and to connect us to our families and our cultures. And when we find a restaurant that serves those familiar foods, whew, it can make us feel more at home. So today on the show, I'm talking about two restaurants that did just that for many Minnesotans. Khyber Pass in St. Paul and Kiefer Court in Minneapolis both closed late last year. Both restaurants were open for nearly 40 years. Right now, we're going to talk with the owners about their legacies and what these restaurants meant to their communities. And as we talk, I want to hear from you too. Is there a family-owned restaurant or grocery store that reminds you of your home or family? Is there a restaurant in your community that means a lot to you? Tell us about it. And more importantly, this is your chance to let them know that you care. The phone lines are open. You can reach us at 651 227 6,000, again, that is 651-227-6000, or you can call 800-242-2828. You'll find me on Twitter, too. I'm at Angela Davis, MPR. Let's meet our guests all in the studio with me this morning. We have Michelle Kwan here, the former owner of the Chinese bakery Kiefer Court in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood of Minneapolis. Kiefer Court closed back in December of 2022 after nearly 40 years in business. Good morning to you, Michelle. Nice to meet you.
1: Good morning, Angela. Great to be here. We also have Amel Kwan. Shazad, the
0: former owner of the Afghan restaurant Khyber Pass on Grand Avenue in St. Paul. Khyber Pass closed in November of 22 after 37 years. Hi, Amel. Hello. Hi. Pleasure to be here. And here in the studio as well, we have Anwa T Nguyen, a poet and writer raised in St. Paul by parents from Vietnam. She worked in grocery stores and restaurants and has written a lot about the connection between food and cultural identity. Good morning to you, Anwa.
2: Thank you, Angela. I'm so honored to be
0: here. Hi. Well, Michelle and um, Amel, I-, I want to start by asking you both about the food that you made and served at your restaurants. Uh, first, you know, just tell us about some of the most popular dishes, why you enjoyed making them, and, and, and you know, what, what do you think your customers really loved about them? Michelle, do you want to go first?
1: Yeah. Um, so we are a traditional Hong Kong-style bakery. Mm-hmm. Um, and we serve things from sweet to savory pastries. We're mo- most known for our barbecue pork buns. My personal favorite was the curry beef puff. Mm. Um, we did a lot of sweet stuff, a lot of delicate stuff like um, egg tarts, egg custard tarts, things that people love to eat, but no one has the time to make. It's very- Or the skill, probably. <laughs> yeah. All right, that sounds great, and um what about you,
0: um, um Emil, when you um think about the foods that you loved that were the most popular, what would you say?
3: Well, there are too many to <laughs> to enumerate, but uh, I think some really simple things, like the chai that we made, mm-hmm. people just raved about it, or the cilantro walnut chutney, which is a condiment that Ooh. I think a lot of people are going to miss the lamb chops the kabuli pilau which is the afghan uh, national dish uh, it's kind of like a pilaf mm-hmm. rice uh, with uh, some ornaments a mm-hmm. uh, family recipe of butternut squash et cetera. Et cetera. and kebabs of
0: course mm-hmm. and uh, uh oh gosh i'm writing this all <laughs> time so, family recipe. Okay, let's talk about that. the the, the cultural significance of these dishes, and you know, uh, Amel, Amel, what would you say about that? the the significance of you know, uh, you know, lamb chops, uh, for instance. Uh, tell me about that, because the, those these recipes and these dishes have meaning.
3: They do. Uh, <clears throat> well, Afghan cuisine is uh, interesting in the fact that Afghanistan's geographical location is like in the heart of Asia. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like. Uh, Blessing and a curse, a blessing because you get cultural influences from all the surrounding areas, the Indian subcontinent, Persia, and by extension, the Middle East, Central Asia, even China. We have like a little bit of a common border with China. So we get cultural influences from all these regions, but also a curse because we've had a lot of invaders over the millennia. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so michelle again these uh, the, the, the sweet and savory pastries you talk about not just good food, but there 's cultural significance in these recipes
1: yeah, so a lot of you know chinese culture we 're just surrounded with food that 's what life is all about it 's all about gathering if you 're meeting with people it 's all about mm-hmm. food. food is in the center of it all for all the gathering gatherings. Um and so some of the things that we my parents really wanted to do was bring that culture here to the United States and so we did things like mooncakes. So my mom makes handmade mooncakes we do everything by hand we do everything fresh to celebrate the mid-autumn festival um, to allow a lot of our community members to get introduced to some of our culture and our traditions but also for folks who immigrated here who miss Mm -hmm. home and miss those traditions and celebrations and being able to have something that they can kind of share with their friends and their family and their young ones as well. So I grew up in
0: Southern Virginia on a farm. We grew sweet potatoes. So, you know, sweet potato pie is mm-hmm. is not just a sweet dessert. It's just not, it's not just the competition to pumpkin pie. It's like, it reminds me of my grandfather, right? Yeah, exactly. Like I can see him in the kitchen making it. So yep. It's a big deal. Um, uh, Anwa, as we talk about food being such a powerful thing, bringing us comfort, bringing us memories, connecting us to our families and history, um, why do you think food is so deeply tied to culture? That's such a beautiful question, Angela.
2: And um, for my family, especially as refugees, um, it's one of the things that we could bring with us mm-hmm. from our homeland. So um, when we fled the Vietnam War, all our possessions were taken. Um but the memories of home, the tastes of home were something mm-hmm. that, like, they were constantly searching for mm-hmm. when we came to this country. Um, and it was really hard because a lot of the ingredients, right, that you would use to make Vietnamese food hadn't really come to Minnesota yet. Like, there were Korean markets, there were Japanese markets, but various um, ingredients and herbs and things like that um, hadn't really uh, come because mm-hmm. of the embargo um, that we had on Vietnam. And, and now with shipping – you can get almost anything, right? You can get lychees. You can get all these amazing um, sauces and things. And so um, for a lot of cultures, um, especially if they've fled, like, you know, war or, you know, social persecution or, you know, reasons why you can't go back, sometimes food is that bridge, right, um, to where you are from. But also, I think food is so amazing because it can actually establish um, your identity in your new home. Right. It can right. it can be um, an agent for change in in the society that you are now part of. Mm-hmm. Right. So then as an uh, immigrant group, which we are all are immigrant groups in some form or another, um, you know, you you then beca- begin to change the culture. Right, You become part of the culture. Um, and so, you know, food is so important for so many things like, you know, national identity, self-identity, pride. Um, it's how we like Michelle was talking about. It's how we celebrate. Um, rituals and ceremonies and, right. um you know, like you're saying, like it brings you back to your grandfather. It can be a time machine, right? It's a travel time machine.
0: Mm-hmm. And if
2: it's really amazing, like, let's say all the flavors are the right, right? Like you can have 10 sweet potato pies, but unless it tastes like the one your grandfather right. made.
0: If it's missing that one spice, yeah.
2: it's not right. It's not magical, <laughs>
0: it's,
2: <laughs> right? But when it's right, you're right. like, wow, right. I just went back in time or I just went back to my homeland, right? Mm. You can taste taste the soil even right the landscape and so i think it's just so um important that as we deal with kind of like anti-racism and colonialism that we don't let um the assimilation the need to assimilate into this country take away our value of that food and our celebration of that food and i think um I mean, I'm just going to say I'm so honored to be here with Michelle and Amal. Um, They're just, like, total rock star icons. But they've done such a great uh, service to our community, and Mm -hmm. I I just want to thank you for that.
0: Which is why we want to talk about um, not just about the closing of the restaurants, but also the opening and what was Mm -hmm. going on in the beginning. And so – Uh, Amel, I want to talk about you and your wife opening Kyber Pass um, in 1986, I believe. What made you want to do that? Uh, Because that's a a big undertaking and it's risky. Yes.
3: Actually, I was not involved in the opening itself. My wife's family came here as uh, refugees and they opened the restaurant. Mm. At the time, I was a student at Mm McAllister and the restaurant was nearby on a residential street. And I went there to dine and met the family, reconnected with, with Afghans, which mm-hmm. is something that I missed a lot. And then I started working at the restaurant. After graduating, I went back east to attend grad school. Then I came back and married her and the two of us around the restaurant from 1991, I believe.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But I think that the opening was... Uh, Very important, because you give back to a community that has welcomed you, and you share your culture, and you have your culture appreciated. And that is priceless. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of risk. It takes some sacrifice. But at the end, it's so rewarding.
0: And so can we talk now about the decision to close, which could not have been easy, Um, No, it wasn't easy. What was happening there at the end of 2022 that led to the decision to close?
3: For the pandemic, we did takeout only for two and a half years on a skeleton crew.
0: Takeout only? Mm -hmm. Takeout only, Mm -hmm.
3: longer than anybody else. And uh, at the end, we just decided that we were aging, the work was really heavy, and we had Gained a great reputation over the years, and we thought maybe it's time to let some younger energy in. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we decided to close, and my daughter's partner, Relina Young, who had, who is a, re- a restaurant professional, she started her own concept. Mm-hmm. We're still kind of uh, partnering with them, but we are not working in the same space. Same space.
0: Mm hmm. And um, Michelle, uh, your parents opened Kiefer Court back in 1983. Is that correct? Um, and why did they make that choice, that decision? Again, that must have been like, you know, stepping out on faith.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, actually, my father had started a bakery in Chicago in the early 80s. Um, that's where my grandparents had immigrated to. And my grandpa's family had a fortune cookie factory there. Mm. So my dad had learned the trade of baking and decided to open up a bakery there, but found competition was really high. And my grandpa said, hey, Sonny, there's there's no Chinese bakery in Minnesota. There's no fortune cookie factory up there where, you know, they need a distributor up there. And so my dad took a big risk with my grandpa and moved up here and started the first Chinese bakery in 83 And, you know, my dad's always he's a bit both my dad and my grandpa are both business people. They are entrepreneurs. They love to take a challenge on. They want to try to, you know, make big things with their life. And so they came up here and my dad actually moved in just down the block from where the bakery was um, working at the Oriental um, grocery store and just so happened to meet the folks that were um, had owned the building. They were making fried noodles and growing bean sprouts there. That same concept, the owners were aging out. Nobody wanted to take over. So my dad bought the building and started the bakery there. Um, And, you know, one of the things he really wanted to do, knowing that the Chinese community was growing in Minnesota in the 80s, was to provide comfort for them, comfort food. And so that's what he did. And he said that first five years, he did not think he was going to make it. There were days where he was only doing $300 a day. My grandparents were sleeping in the bakery because they were there. They said, well, we could go get a house and sleep there, but then we'd have to spend Expensive. all that time. yeah, to travel transit. Right. And so um, so they just decided, let's go to Minnesota and let's let's feed the community up here. There's enough bakeries in Chicago.
0: Wow. And so um, as the years passed, uh, the business grew
1: yeah so eventually um people started to hear about us you know the community is really small chinese community asian community in minnesota is really small so word of mouth spread people started to come to us we started making connections there my dad started the fortune cookie factory i believe in 86 and then started going out to all the restaurants meeting the local community chinese restaurants asian restaurants and distributing the fortune cookies through that and then as Folks were immigrating to Minnesota, um, especially like the Chinese and Asian community members were moving into the Cedar Riverside neighborhood. So one of the great things about that was there's this connection where we can build bridges with um, immigrants coming and providing jobs for them. And so that was one of the very important things for my dad, too. Where is little Michelle in all of this? (laughs) I was literally born into the bakery. (laughs) Seriously? Uh, Yep. Um, I. (laughs) So the story of my birth is I'm born right around Mid-Autumn Festival. So my mom's making all of these mooncakes for the Mid-Autumn Festival. She goes, my water broke, but I needed to make sure that the the mooncakes went into the oven and they came out okay before we can go to the hospital. (laughs) So they put me on hold to make sure the bakery was functioning okay. And then I was literally raised by the bakery. You know, my parents were, they were in the height of that busyness, you know, in 85, and so business was growing. So they just put me in a car seat on the table. And the customers were my babysitters. People would mm. come in. Oh, that's and, beautiful.
0: So that people listening I'm like, oh, I know that little girl. You <laughs> know, it's, it's fun because I've,
1: I've worked in the bakery my whole life. And, you know, as I grew older, people were like, yeah, I remember there was a little girl running around, you know, in the bakery. And I go, yep, that, that was me.
0: And so then we get to December of 2022 and Kiefer Court closes.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: And it pains me just to say that sentence, but what, what, what led to that, Michelle?
1: Um, so about five years ago, I took over the bakery from my parents, running it for my parents. They are in their late 60s now. And mm-hmm. so they, my mom and dad go, you know, are getting ready to retire. They weren't sure if they wanted to sell the business or to pass it on to one of us out of the four kids. I was the only one interested. And I said, well, let me give it a try. What's the worst that can happen? I fail, and then (laughs) we'll see see where it goes. Um, Things were going great. Business was great. Mm -hmm. But what I realized is that my parents had an entire community backing them up, helping them. My, My dad had a bunch of siblings and cousins coming to help him, so he had a great support system running the business. When I took over, both my parents stepped back, and then it was just me my right. siblings ran as far as they could <laughs> they said no thank you and so it just became really difficult as a single person trying to run the bakery i was doing front of house i'm baking i'm doing the back of house stuff i'm i'm learned how to be an accountant and a bookkeeper and all those things mm-hmm. and it just became too much for me and so i told my parents i said i don't know how much how many more years i can sustain running this business certainly cuz as you know, one of the great things is as business gets or one of the things is as business grows, you have there's more of a demand. Yes. And when there's only so many hands and so many hours in a day, you can only because we make everything fresh. Our dough, we do it daily. Our fillings, we do it, you know, everything we do fresh from scratch by hand. And so there's just so much labor that goes to. It. And if you ever see our bakery case, it's packed with stuff. And and so it's not like we're making two or three things. We're making like 50, 60 things every day, Mm -hmm. hundreds of them at a time. And so I told my dad about two years ago, I said, you know, start looking for someone to buy. Because really, I'm running this bakery to retire my parents. So their retirement, financial retirement, all sits on my shoulders. And so I said, if you can find someone to either buy the building or buy the business, get yourself into retirement. I'll be fine. I will figure out my next venture and it's probably gonna be in food. This is I literally grew up in a restaurant. I I can't run away from food. I love cooking, I love feeding mm-hmm. the community. And so I wanted to kind of take it into my own space. I wanted mm-hmm. to run something on my own and not have to Follow my parents' footsteps. I can appreciate that.
0: All right. Uh, If you're just joining us, we're talking about food. We're talking about restaurants and, uh, in particular, family-owned restaurants uh, or maybe a grocery store that reminds you of your home or family. Is there a restaurant in your community that means a lot to you and why? And are you worried about it closing? Did it close? You can tell us about it. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. We're going to take your phone calls in just a moment. But first, I, I I'm going to ask you to play historian here for a moment because what we're talking about really is so, sort of like nationally. Um, the, the history of, of many immigrant owned restaurants in the United States for many Asian immigrants who came to the U.S. 40, 50 years ago, opening a business like a restaurant was one of the few ways to really make a, a livelihood. Tell us more about that history just nationally.
1: Sure.
2: um, Excuse me. Playing the historian, um, I'd like to (laughs) invoke the uh, amazing, wonderful Erica Lee. Um, And instead of me trying to summarize uh, her brilliance, I think I'm going to just read this passage that really um, captures Mm -hmm. kind of the foundation of the um, immigrant restaurant, like you were saying. So this passage is from The Making of Asian America. Chinese restaurants had similar origins than Chinese laundries. Gold Rush era California was filled with few women and even fewer men who were willing to cook and, and feed others. Like the entrepreneurial Wali, Chinese immigrants seized on the opportunity to support themselves and worked as camp cooks and operators of small eating establishments. By the early 20th century, restaurants were a mainstay for many immigrant families who opened up Chop suey houses catering to non-Chinese clientele across the country. As Chinese moved across the United States, so did Chinese laundries and restaurants. Shut out from other jobs because of racial discrimination, Chinese were forced into self-employment, ethnic economies, and work no one else wanted. Neither required professional skills, proficiency in English, or education, and the business could be operated by single owners and small families or large group participants. So, f- for example, what Michelle was talking about, um, these family owned businesses, I mean, they, they are a necessity, but they're also like an e- economic model, right? Because most of the time you have labor that isn't paid for. And so the only way that these immigrant communities can survive in the restaurant industry is to have that kind of like system of, of support, like Michelle was saying. Um, I, I spent time in a restaurant with my mom when she worked. In restaurants and she would take me with her in the summer and I would like sleep on a cot and like, you know, put silverware on the table, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like um, most Chinese restaurants are run in that way. And so there's so many of my friends from the Bay Area that have
0: memories of like living in restaurants. And it's also common uh, for these restaurants, these businesses to be passed down through generations. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's such
2: a heartbreak when places do close, um, because there's such an expertise in that food. It's kind of like the hawker system in Singapore where people like master various dishes, like Amal saying the lamb chop, right? You learn to rely on these foods, right? The, the quality of these foods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's really, it's really destabilizing actually when your favorite Chinese restaurant closes. Um, and you know, The thing is, when you live in the restaurant, you see how hard the owners Mm -hmm. work. You see how hard the parents work. You see how much they sacrifice. So Mm -hmm. like in my Bun mi essay about what we hunger for, I have a line that says, you know, you sacrifice time with your family for feeding strangers. Mm. Right. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. I just I just think that like there needs to be a solution where these restaurants don't necessarily have to close because I think the owners are the people who our forefathers and mothers, they deserve that re- retirement, right? They need some joy in
0: their life. Yes. Um, just but to, to be able to walk in and, and be able to just judge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> you could have done that a little bit bigger, but nice try, right? <laughs> they deserve that. Um, Amel, I, I want to talk about, I think for those of us who don't know a lot about the restaurant business, we know it's a lot of work. Long hours, um, long weeks, a lot of time on your feet. And so when we look at a restaurant, uh, uh, an Afghan restaurant like Khyber Pass, um, what the, a typical day look like, um, you know, in terms of this, this hard work we're talking about?
3: Well, uh, you come in, you do prep, you go shopping for the ingredients, you bring them, you prepare them. Sometimes you have a little help, sometimes you don't. But so it's, it's a lot of work. That is very uh, tolling. But uh, then when you open the doors... And the guests come in, not two days are alike. Every (laughs) moment is different. Every interaction is a different thing. So in 30-some years of working there, I didn't experience a single moment of boredom.
0: (laughs) And uh, your daughter was very present at the restaurant as well.
3: Uh, Well, yeah, as... uh, some of us know she was born into the restaurant, <laughs> and I remember she had like her, we had secluded a little area for her to take naps, <laughs> and then she started walking, and uh, she would give menus to. to Customers, as I had just taken their order, went to the kitchen to put the, the order in, would come back, they had menus again. <laughs> so She was trying, right? She was trying, and she would ask people, do you love our food? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when she grew up, she realized that it's a lot of work, uh, so she she went for a different career.
0: Right. And you...
3: did Both my son you, and my daughter. Did
0: you accept that? Okay. And, and was that... What was that like, those conversations? Uh,
3: it wasn't even a conversation. It was something that we accepted. Mm-hmm. We didn't want them to uh, work that hard.
0: If it wasn't their dream, their passion. Yeah. I
3: yeah. mean, uh, they had a right to have their own dreams that were different from ours. For us, it was a different thing because we had newly arrived in this country And we wanted to share something that people would appreciate about us. And hospitality is a big part of our culture. Mm -hmm. And so it was uh, a way to connect with the people, a way to build community, a way to feel appreciated, a way to feel like we belonged. Mm -hmm. So we we gained a lot of uh, hearts and minds Mm -hmm. over the years. I think that music and food are the two things that truly win hearts and minds. Connect
0: us in a very universal way. All right, well, I'm going to take some phone calls. We're talking with... um restaurant owners former restaurant owners um and uh and talking with you as well i want to hear your stories about uh family owned restaurants in particular or maybe a grocery store that reminds you of your home your family your culture what they mean to you you can call us at 651-227-6000 uh let's take a phone call right now in minneapolis where amy is on the phone amy thank you for waiting and for calling in what do you want to share with us
4: Hi, thank you for taking my call. I Mm -hmm. wanted to give a little shout-out to a small strip of Snelling Avenue in St. Paul, where there are Korean a couple of Korean restaurants and a little tiny Kim's Korean grocery store. Um, My son was born in Korea, and he lived there until he was one. And when he came home, or when we brought him home, we were desperate to find Mm -hmm. some of the treats that he loved and to keep him close to his culture and... We found Kim's Grocery Store, where we found everything that he loved, and then uh, we would go to Mirror of Korea, and we were so welcome as a family. They loved to see him, and uh, a little another tiny one called um, Soul Cafe, and we live in South Minneapolis, and he's 15 now, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I travel every other week to get takeout food and to still get all of his favorite treats from Korea. And it was so important to us. And so a shout out to all those businesses up, up there. And, and my heart breaks for these folks. I've worked in restaurants for 32 years for the same company. And over the pandemic, I've had to close a couple. And it's heartbreaking to mm-hmm. listen to these folks who put their whole lives into this.
0: And Amy, you're, you're, and your, son, gone. your son is 15 now. What are you hoping that he yeah. gets out of these childhood memories of, um, you know, experiencing the food in, in these Korean restaurants?
4: Well, I know that he's gone a lot because he talks frequently about going to college in Korea. Um, it's it's a connection. He still sits down and eats kimchi, but only the kind that I get from Kim's. <laughs> um, he's very sure of himself and who he is, and I mm. appreciate their role in that.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Amy in Minneapolis. Anwa, uh, you want to tell me why you have your arms thrown up in the air and you're cheering while Amy was talking about this?
2: Oh, I just absolutely love Kim's Market. And, okay. um the man who owns it is just so adorable and, <laughs> and sweet.
0: And so um, props to him. All right. Let's take another phone call. Uh, in St. Paul, uh, we have Kim on the line. Good morning, Kim. What do you want to tell us about uh, restaurants? Hi. Thank Hi. you.
5: Yeah. So I've really been enjoying this conversation, and it echoes in so many ways an oral history project I did a number of years ago on about Eat Street in Minneapolis, Nicollet mm-hmm. Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the project, I interviewed you know, a number of families who had owned and operated restaurants and markets along that stretch of Nicollet Avenue. And many of those folks were immigrants or the children of immigrants. Um, and so it, the project I did and the conversation you're having today is just so reflective of the hard work and the contributions that these these people from other places have made to our in Minnesota to Minneapolis. It's a gift. And to the way food can bridge Mm -hmm. cultures. And so I just wanted to to say that those stories are also out there and available. The interviews are available for anyone who is interested in listening to them at the Hennepin County Library in downtown Minneapolis. So I just really appreciate the the conversation today and and all the work that these people have done in sharing their food and the culture with the rest of us who have lived in Minnesota.
0: So again, it's an oral history uh, project about each street in Minneapolis that can be found at the Hennepin County Library. Yes, system. correct. All right. Thank you, Kim. And before I talk more with my guests, let's take some more phone calls uh, as people want to lift up some of the places that they love uh, in Minneapolis. We have Kathy on the line. Good morning, Kathy. What did you want to tell us?
6: Hi, I'm calling from Northeast Minneapolis, the United Nations of Food up here. <laughs> but even though I have Northern European heritage, the, the places I love and remember are from halfway across the planet, and I'd like to mention two. Um, First of all, there's Vina, V-I-N-A, which is a Vietnamese cuisine. The one in Highland Parkway, uh, um, I'm sorry, on Ford Parkway in Cleveland is still open. This one was founded by the parents maybe 40-some years ago, and the Richfield location unfortunately has closed, and that was run by one of the children, I believe, and also a third location, I think in St. Paul, that also closed but we used to get takeout about every other week from there and vietnamese chow mein is not like cantonese chow mein the noodles are different thinner and crisper and the sauce is different but their egg rolls <clears throat> are shatteringly crisp <laughs> and they were always just so wonderful and you know uh, to to greet the customers and talk with them and everything so vina is is mm-hmm. still there in on Ford Parkway. In Highland Park. Go that. In Highland, yep. Yeah. And my other favorite place is Moroccan Flavors in the Midtown Global Market, mm-hmm. which has equipment and spices and dishes that I cannot make at home. So whenever I have a special occasion or a friend come into town, we always go there for dinner. And this is run by a husband and wife team from Morocco. They're both trained chefs that have worked in local restaurants and hotels, but their food is just amazing. So uh, we wish them lots of luck in their small enterprise. And thanks for the program. You're oh.
0: making me hungry. <laughs> oh, you're making us hungry, too. Thank you, Kathy. A lot of people who love food, but also appreciate the people who create it for us. Um, so Kathy, thank you for that phone call. And I want to ask you about this. Uh, the story that we're hearing from um, our other two guests here, Michelle and and, and Amel, are, are part of a bigger trend. Uh, we know there are a handful of other longtime um, uh, restaurants in the Twin Cities that closed in 2022. Um, Asian restaurants in particular, Asia Chow, Maine and Columbia Heights and uh, David Fong's in Bloomington. Um, that one I have in my notes was open for 64 years. Um, the New York Times reported a couple of years ago that uh, the share of Chinese-owned restaurants uh, in major metropolitan areas is on the decline. What is your understanding of, of what is going on specifically, I think, among Asian um, restaurants?
2: Um, so thank you for that question, angela. So I, I'm going to be very clear. I'm, I'm not the authority on this subject, but I do know a lot of restaurants that have closed and people who have owned these restaurants that have closed. Um, and it is unfortunate that this um, situation is happening, especially for families, because um, sometimes food is the thing that keeps families together. You know, not just at the dinner table, but also like the business, like Michelle was saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there are a lot of factors. Um, You know, we talk about upward mobility or access to education. Um, You know, maybe families are getting more, um, you know, more wealth attained. So there's a little more security. Um, But, you know, especially with COVID, I mean, there are so many factors that, you know, it's such a razor thin um, margin, you know, for a lot of restaurants. And so just one thing can just, you know, push you over the edge. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when you think about all the reasons why restaurants close, I mean, some of it does have to do with things that aren't family related, like, um, you know, sometimes you lose your lease, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can't afford the lease, especially, you know, when um, certain um, post recession or like when rent is super high or something, and you know, things get out of hand, um, families can't afford that rent anymore or they get bought out. Um, one of my favorite uh, Chinese restaurants that closed was Village Walk in Stadium Village. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that, mm-hmm. I mean, that was like super go-to. And um, that closed because, you know, they bought the land and developed something different there. Mm-hmm. But they also took away my um, one of my favorite Bun mi shops, which was Bun mi. And mm-hmm. so they like took out two of my favorite places um, for this development. And so
0: when you think about um, The impact of that. The impact of that, right? Um, Because you're in in like a fight stance. I wish people could see you.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, like, you know, I mean, those those businesses not only served our community, they served the student body, right? They serve that global, you know, intersection. And, you know, the students don't have but me. And I am very upset about that.
0: I want to know, um, um, uh, Amel and Michelle, as much as you can recall, what was the reaction from your longtime customers? Because I'm sure there was a point where weeks or days that you had to let people know were closing. Uh, what do you remember about that time last winter, what people were saying or a few months ago well, when this uh, happened? How did they take the news?
3: Well, there, there were a lot of things that were kind of uh, not uh, clear for, for a long time, and I didn't want to announce something that was not quite sure. It was not right. a done deal. Right. So we kept it under wraps, and then uh, I think it was the last week, that we announced it on ba- on, on Facebook, mm-hmm. and we just got uh, inundated with Comments. with people and uh, just old customers coming in. Even if there was no room to sit, they would just come and just want to hug us and give mm-hmm. us their love. So we we didn't announce it too long before it was happening. Right. Also mm-hmm. because we uh, we just. So they didn't want to get too stressed out. It's hard, right. But it was such a magical uh, time that last week, so many people came, so many people that had been with us for years, so many people who had supported us during the pandemic would take out mm-hmm. on a regular basis. They all came. I mean, people had bought uh, gift cards from us, but they refused to... To, to, to use those gift cards because they said, no, we want to support you so they would pay us extra and, and not use the gift cards that they had already purchased it was just like the, the generosity and the love made us understand that uh, we had done a beautiful job
0: right and I just want to take a moment here I, wonder, I have some written comments uh, from people who called in this morning uh, for both of you uh, Kathleen in Duluth uh, says I wanted to thank Kyber Pass for making my life better I would go there after work and always enjoy the food. It was food I had not had before, but I always enjoyed it. And it was a warm and welcoming place. Um, and here's another one, um, um, Amel, about Kyber Pass. James in St. Paul writes this. I went to McAllister College years ago, and Kyber Pass was the first place I went that opened me to a bigger world and a cuisine we wouldn't have experienced at home. It was a special thing for someone who grew up in a small town in Nebraska, now on special occasions I love to go to Golden Chalmain on 7th Street. Um and then uh for you Michelle, uh Louis writes this on Twitter, so sad to see Kiefer Court go but happy to know that they're going on their own terms. And um so yeah, so the love. So uh how did people react Michelle? Uh, and how much notice did you let people know? Give did you give folks?
1: We gave folks a month. So same thing with Amel. We were kind of in the talks. Nothing was ever set in stone. And so we kind of waited. And once we had things all lined up, I told my dad, I said, we have to at least be open for a month. We got to give people a month to come. Mm -hmm. And my thought was, then people will kind of slowly trickle in. It'll give us some time. Oh, boy, was I wrong. (laughs) I was so (laughs) wrong. I had announced it at the end of November, right after the Thanksgiving holiday. How? On social media? On social media. We we posted Mm -hmm. on our social media to let folks know. Within two minutes, I was getting phone calls, text messages. Oh, my God, Kiefer. I mean, uh, Minneapolis is going to lose a staple. People are going to be devastated in the Twin Cities. And then our social media was just blowing up. I had people telling me, I don't even follow you on social media, but it's all over my social media (laughs) because people are reposting it. And that next day, so I posted it that evening. That next day, we had a line out the door. Wow! And I go, you guys, there's a whole month left. People were buying. Because
0: you keep up with the demand to to bake the stuff that you needed? Well, I didn't know
1: it was going to be that busy. So we were like, it's a normal Thursday or I think it was a Friday. It was a normal Friday. We made our normal amount of buns. We sold out by like noon. (laughs) So then I had to pull my dad down. I said, dad, you got to come down here. And he had to go in the kitchen. And so this last month, every day we had a line out the door around the building. People just came in. We were baking all throughout the day. We were probably doing in one day what we would do in a week. That's how much we were making. We had my mom's friends. My friends were coming in, helping out. Did it make you reconsider?
0: Like, well, maybe we should oh, stay, find a new spot. Maybe, <laughs> do, I mean, what is no. the conversation like? The conversation, <laughs> yes. my mom You're goes, like, no.
1: why <laughs> is everybody coming now? Why are they coming now that we're closing? <laughs> my mom was so upset. She goes, we've been open for 40 years. Why didn't you guys come before? Um, you know, the the love was just beautiful. I, it It hit me so hard because we knew people loved kefir. People would always say it, but, like, people showed up. People were like – and people didn't just come once that month. I had some customers coming three to four times every week. Mm -hmm. And I go, don't you want to eat something else? I go, not this month. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, a lot of people were sad but also happy that my parents get to retire. I get to pursue, you know, my path. But I had a lot of the longtime customers, a lot of like the Asian older customers who were mm-hmm. scolding me.
5: <laughs> Why aren't you
1: <laughs> keeping this open? Oh, <laughs> look at all these people! You need to keep. You need to stay open. How are you?
0: How do you respond to that? How are you allowed to respond to that? Because I'm I'm 12 again, just hearing you.
1: <laughs> I, I know, right? Watching <laughs> you say, and that. I'm looking at them and I go, I know, I know, but you know, and I go, Do you want to run it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: No no no, 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 but but give me a few more of those pastries, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, let's take another phone call. Uh, I'm just I'm happy to know that people who loved you showed their love, so I'm I'm happy to hear that. Uh, in St. Paul, let's take a phone call from Nancy as we talk about family owned restaurants uh, that we love and, and, and many that closed over the last few years. Uh, Nancy, good morning to you. Good morning. Hi.
7: I am I am so sad to learn, <laughs> as I did just a second ago, that there was a whole week. Before Kyber Pass closed, um, I didn't find out about it until the night before, so I wasn't one of the people mm-hmm. able to come in and say goodbye. <laughs> but I also wanted to say, in, when Emel was talking about the uh, the the cultural aspects of and the community welcoming that that they did, they did way more than that. I mean. Um, I think that Masuda and and ML were long term sponsors um, at the international film festival. Uh, the there was a jazz festival in town for a while called Minnesota Cirque that he embraced and um, also just I, nobody has talked about how beautiful that space was. It 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 was one of my aesthetic homes. Um, ML's paintings were amazing. I missed them. I used to have a special place where I could sit and look at my favorite every time I ate. there. (laughs) Um, Anyway, it was just, and and the two of them were some of the most wonderfully kind, warm, and embracing people I have ever known. Um, And a little anecdote, I was in an Uber in Washington, D.C. a few years ago, and it turned out that the driver was, was a cousin of Emel's oh, Wow! <laughs> knew
0: about the restaurant. <laughs> wow! Wow! Yeah. Well, Nancy, this so, is—I I can tell you—Emil um, um, has a, a beautiful smile on his face. Uh, so thank oh, you I'm so glad. for and calling. Some tears
3: in my eyes.
0: And some tears. I wasn't—I wasn't, oh, wasn't going to give up the tears, but <laughs> no. now he's told you. Now, oh. We did not get to ask you. I hadn't had a chance to ask you about the artwork. You mentioned music was important to you. Yeah. What is this artwork, Nancy, talking about that you had in the space well, there at Kuiper?
3: I have yeah. been a painter my whole life. And uh, for example, during the pandemic, when the dining room was closed, I covered everything in plastic and turned the dining room into a painting studio. Good for you. And I was, uh, it was a blessing in disguise almost mm-hmm. because I produced a lot of art. And the art was, uh, even before, uh, the art has had always been on the walls and it was a, a way for me to uh, show my art. We had a music series, an improvised jazz series every Thursday night for the past ten years. A lot of local and national musicians came and played. They graced our space and It was one of their favorite places to play because the audience was so dedicated and it was just the listening room mm-hmm. you couldn't hear like even the ice inside the glass because people were so respectful. And the musicians just had tremendous appreciation for that kind of respect. Mm. It, was a, it was a beautiful thing.
0: I want to take uh, another phone call before we run out of time. Uh, in St. Paul, we've got Kristen on the line. Good morning, Kristen. What do you want to tell us as we talk about uh, family-owned restaurants?
8: Um, Yes, I live in Midway, right on the corner of Frogtown and Midway in St. Paul, right off of University Avenue, um, Mm -hmm. where I think some of the best restaurants um, in the state are in its... um A complete pride for our neighborhood. Um, In fact, my daughter, when she invited some friends over from middle school, some new friends, I was a little worried. Some of them lived in nicer neighborhoods than us, and here she had all these friends over, and she was bragging to all her friends. If you like banh mi, we have the best in our neighborhood. If you like (laughs) Korean food, we have the best in our neighborhood. Do you like sambusa? We have the best in our neighborhood because um, that is what our neighborhood is, and um, my kids. Can tell you what foods come from what countries. Um, all because within you know six blocks of our house, we're able to go and eat at these family restaurants, and um, you know some of them are Trung Nam on University, Best banh Mi, Best Croissants. We have um, the best Pho restaurants. We have I Pho on University and. Paul Pasteur, right, on Snelling and University. Really great
0: restaurants, and it's just mm-hmm. something I really appreciate. Thank you, uh, Kristen in and St. Paul. And just our last minute here, uh, Anwa. So what can we do? I mean, you know, we can't control businesses when they close, but we can. We do have some control over uh, having a curiosity about history and culture and supporting that um, in, in our last minute. So what would you say to folks, like, who are sad, but, like, what's the next thing for us?
2: I think the most we can do is support The businesses we love as much as possible and Mm -hmm. the power of um, our persuasion and and word and social media and all those things. Um, It is really challenging when the economy is suffering to have that extra money to eat out. Mm -hmm. But I think like Amal was saying that there are ways in which you give back to the restaurant owners as well. Um, And I just think that, you know, if we think of ourselves as kind of a large family, um, how would you support your family? You know, and I Mm -hmm. and I think that's the most beautiful part about sharing food with others. Um, And so,
0: I I would just say that, you know, if you love something, uh, show it. Show it. All right. All right. That's going to be our closing thought. Uh, Thank you all for driving in and for sharing so much uh, of your stories with us. And thank you to our listeners who called in to to show your love to our guests and other restaurant owners as well. We've been talking with Michelle Kwan, uh, the former owner of. The Chinese bakery, Kiefer Court, in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood of Minneapolis. Kiefer Court closed in December after nearly 40 years of business. And we've also been talking with Amel Shahzad, the former owner of the Afghan restaurant... Khyber Pass on Grand Avenue in St. Paul, which closed in November of 2022 after 37 years. And also with us, we've had Anwa T. Wen, a poet and a writer raised in St. Paul. Thank you to all of you and to my wonderful producers. This conversation was produced by Nak Bui and Samantha Matsumoto. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow at nine.